Alright, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, starting, I'm going to read verses 17 through 19, we'll cover through verse 22 tonight, uh, but we'll just stop in verses 17 through 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, uh, we've been looking at what a life of faith looks like, and we're going to continue doing that tonight. But for this instance, in this section here, I want to focus on the words, when God tested him. Do you see that? It says there in verse 17, when God tested him. And I want to talk to you a little bit tonight and take you back to the story, and we'll take a look at it, about the fact that God tests us. Uh, If you didn't know that, the scripture actually is pretty clear, and I'll show you a couple of instances of that, where the Bible says that God puts us to the test. Now, before we go any further in that, let me just clarify for you. Does God put you to the test so that He can find out what your response would be? No. No, He's all-knowing. He already knows what your response will be. Let me clarify that for you. Go to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, here in the feeding of the 5,000 in John's account, it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse 6 says, He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Why was Jesus testing Philip then? So Philip would know what? Who Jesus was. I think it's also so Philip would know who Philip was. A lot of times, if you've ever heard me preach on this passage, remember when your kids were little, they were like two, and they would come out to you and you tried to dress them and they'd say, I can dress myself? Do you remember that? Now you knew full well they couldn't dress themselves, but you gave them a test, didn't you? You said, said, okay, big boy, big girl, here's your pants, here's your socks, here's your undies, knock yourself out. Why were you testing them? To find out whether they could dress themselves? No, you already knew they couldn't. You put them in a situation... And had them respond to the situation so that in doing so, they would find out what you already knew about where they were in their level of maturity and their response. Let me tell you, God will test you, not so that He will find out where you are, but so that you will find out what you already know about yourself. Let me give you an example of that. It's in Luke 22. In Luke 22, starting in verse 31, a very famous passage. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as weak, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Of course, other gospel accounts show us that Jesus said, as it says in the, you know, the prophecies, the, I'll strike the shepherd and all the sheep will be scattered. What was Peter's response to that prophecy? Not me. You don't know me, God. I won't. I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'm going to stay with you. I will go, well, as he says here, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
Jesus said, oh really? I love that. One of the gospel accounts, he says it this way. Will you really, Peter? Actually, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny you know me three times. Jesus already knew what his response was going to be. But he put Peter in a situation and tested him so that Peter would know who Peter really was. Remember in the garden when God said to Adam and Eve, where are you? Did he not know? Of course he knew. Why was he asking him a question he already knew the answer to? Because they had to fess up and understand and acknowledge what he already knows. Folks, listen to me. In order for God to move you in faith from where you are to the next level, you have to first acknowledge where you are. If you don't think you're here, but you already think you're here, God has to show you you're here before He can move you to here, because you're not going to be willing to move to here, because you think you're already there. You understand what I'm saying? Did that make? I, mean, I don't want. Please don't make me repeat that. All right. So when God tests you, is He doing it to humiliate you? Not really. In in a small sense, yes. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So in a small sense, yes, but not in the bad sense. He's wanting you to find out what he already knows. And the sooner you confess or agree with God and acknowledge the same thing as God, the sooner you admit where you are and what he already knows, the easier it will be for you and for him to move you from where you are to where you're going. So listen closely. You men and women who are wanting to grow in faith who are children of a father who wants you to grow in faith, he's going to test your faith. Oh, it's not to find out if you're going to be able to pass the test. He already knows that you will or you won't. Why is he going to test you? To show you where you really are. You and I, we think we're stronger in our faith than we really are sometimes. Oh, if I was in that situation, I would... Well, actually, the only way you'll ever know is if you're in that situation. Isn't that not true? But understand that Abraham, when he was tested, responded in faith. And how about this? Abraham was tested, and he found out something about himself that God already knew, but Abraham needed to know. Remember, if you look back at Abraham's life, he's been worried about losing what's his. Feeling a need to protect what is his. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Why would he lie? It was only a half lie. Because, I mean, she was kind of half, a half-sister. Why would he lie and say, she's not my wife, she's my sister? Fear. Fear. He was afraid that they would kill him to take his wife. And to protect what was his, his own life and his wife, he would lie. Yet now, when God gives him the test of faith, Abraham does not protect what is his. He hands back this child that God had promised him. And we're going to take a look at that. Go to Genesis chapter 22. Look at verses 1 and 2. Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. That's a test, folks. I don't care who you are. That's a test. Now let's go back to Hebrews and look at how the Hebrew writer writer describes this. 
By faith, verse 17, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Hang on for a second. We've seen that said now twice, haven't we? Here in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Here it says his one and only son. How many sons did Isaac have at this time? Two. He had two. Remember, he had produced Ishmael through Hagar. But only one legitimate. Only one in God's eyes. And this is important. Does God care about Ishmael? Yes. The Bible said that He'd make him a mighty nation. He provided for Hagar and Ishmael. He cared about him. But in the eyes of God, because of God's promise and God's plan, God had told Abraham, I am going to make you a mighty nation. At the time, he had no children. And he said, through you, through your offspring, the whole world will be blessed. And God had in mind what he was going to do. Ishmael was of the flesh. Isaac was of the Spirit. Now that's important for us because the Bible says that the flesh counts for nothing before God. Now some of us, we've heard the term the flesh and we've grown up in our our churches and we heard the preacher talking about the acts of the flesh and we think about fornication and adultery and those are acts of the flesh. But actually Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that if anyone has any reason to have more confidence in the flesh... He does. And then what does he list? Does he list adultery and fornication? No. No, he lists what we would be impressed with. I'm a Jew of the Jews, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, Pharisee, legalistically righteous, and all that stuff that I did, that man would count for something, now I count it as loss. Listen to my definition of the flesh. Anything done independent of God is the flesh. Anything done that God didn't do is of the flesh. And it counts for nothing before God. Your righteousness is what? As filthy rags. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, it was because Ishmael was of the flesh, counted for nothing before God. Isaac was of the promise. Isaac was the one that God supernaturally gave to them. And Isaac was the one that counted before God. Listen to you, you Christians who have been taught to go work hard for Jesus. Most Christians today who have been busting their fanny to please God and to serve God without knowing what it means to live by faith and allow God to do what He wants to do through them, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to see most of what they have done, even if they've been a deacon for 50 years, they're going to see most of what they've done burn up. It counts for nothing before God. Why? Because it was done in the flesh, independent of God. Are you doing what you're doing because it's the right thing to do? Or are you doing it because the Spirit of God has said, this is what I want you to do, and you're walking in faith? This is what this whole chapter is about. And so I want to challenge you to make sure that you're measuring, I'm doing what I believe God's led me, and I'm seeing God work through me. I was having this conversation with uh, Suzanne, was it last, two weeks ago? And we were looking at possibility of filling that pulpit empty Sunday there in August up in New England. And she's got connections up there and i got connections. And I just told her, I said, no, 
God doesn't need my help. If He wants me to preach up on that Sunday, He will do it. And then to have someone that I've never met send me an email and literally write in there, we want just a preacher to preach at our church. Only God did that. It wasn't by us. He doesn't need our help. And so in this instance, God says, take your son, your only son, and let's go back here to John, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 17 and following. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. This is what I want to pull out now. We dealt with the aspect of the test. What is the aspect of faith here that's being focused on? It's this. And this I put it in words if you want to put it down. It was that Abraham believed in full faith in God's promise, even though God's test sure looked like he wouldn't keep his promise. I'll say it again. Abraham believed in full faith in God's promise, even though God's test sure looked like he wouldn't keep his promise. I'll clarify this for you by having you turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, look at verses 15 through 22. It says, God also said to Abraham, It's for Sarai your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham loved Ishmael. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him and I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. So God came and met with Abraham and said, Your wife Sarah is going to have a son this time next year. You're going to name him Isaac. And he's the one, my promise to you, that I've already made. It's going to come through. It's going to be Isaac and him alone. Go to Genesis 21. Look at verses 1-13. through 13. God reminds him. Makes it very clear. So now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. When Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him, sorry, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Then the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he's your offspring. But it's through Isaac 
that the promise is going to come. He's had it told to him at least twice now. So now, knowing that God has said it's through Isaac, God now comes to him in chapter 22 and says, I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to take him to a mountain that I'll show you, and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Folks, you do understand what that means, right? That means you stab it and kill it, and then you burn it. Let's not make it. Him. You stab him and kill him, and then you burn him. Wow. Wow. That's a test. But what was Abraham's mindset going into this test? Do we have any idea? See, because there's lots of people that write about how Abraham wrestled with this and how he was tormented for those nights ahead of time. And the Scripture doesn't ever show us that. Actually, the only thing the Scripture says is this. Abraham believed God was going to raise him from the dead. Right? Well, actually, he believed he was. Let me show you how I can prove that to you that he thought he would. Go back to Hebrews 11, verse 19. It says in verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could, very good, but stick with me, could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. But in Genesis 22, in the story here, look at verses 3 through 5. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then what? We will come back to you. That's faith, folks. It's not like he had read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's not like he had read about Jairus' daughter. It's not like he'd read about Eutychus that had fallen to his death on the window and Paul raised him from the dead. We don't have any instances recorded anyway of someone being raised from the dead. But Abraham thought, okay, this makes no sense to me because you said it's through this child and this child alone that my offspring's going to be. And there's no other offspring of him even. He's too young. And now you want me to kill him? The only thing I can think is you're going to raise him from the dead. So he told the servants, we're going to go and worship and we're going to come back. He had faith. Oh, this took 25 years, did it not, to get to this kind of faith? It took a while of God's testing and testing and testing. And in time, he saw who he really was. And God was able to move him from who he was to where he needed to be. Folks, stop getting off the operating table. Your Father has saved you, and He's created you, and He's made a relationship with you, and He's pre-planned what He wants to do through you, and He's part of what He's pre-planned is conform you to the image of His Son. That's a process. But most of us, when the test comes, we avoid it, we try to circumvent it, we try to come up with some other plan, and we don't finish the test. Or even if we go through the test, how many of us take the time to acknowledge what the test shows us? You do professor-ish things. You work in that realm. There's tests. The tests aren't just to say you got an A, B, or C. It's to hopefully that the student will realize, hey, I got a C. 
I probably need to do a little bit more work so I can get a better grade next time. A lot of the kids they see, that's good with me. And there are too many Christians that are saying the same thing. And they're happy to stay where you are. That's why Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19, how long in the agony of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you. In other words, you should be progressing in the womb, if you will, and you're not. You should be teachers by now, yet, as we read in Hebrews, I'm only able to give you milk. Why? Because when the tests of God come, we don't allow them to accomplish their purpose, and we stay where we are. Folks, your Father is going to test you, and He wants to show you where you really are. Acknowledge it, and then say, move me to the next level. And that's going to require you taking a step of faith. But when God comes through, your faith will increase. Your faith will grow. And you will move to this level that Abraham had. Now, when God delays in our minds in fulfilling His promise, we tend to question God's Word, don't we? Or we tend to come up with maybe a different interpretation. Any examples? Can anybody give me any examples of that? Yeah, but. (laughs) Yes, we do say yeah, but a lot, don't we? Think about this. I mean, I want to throw this out to you. Give me, give me some examples of God delaying in His promise. Because here, remember, it was 25 years after the promise that Isaac was finally born. And then, so many years after that, God comes to him and says, Now I want you to kill the one I told you I'd promise. And so when God seems to delay, or the test sure looks like it's not going to happen, what do we tend to do? We tend to help him out, or make excuses, come up with a different interpretation, maybe, we, you know... Has anybody thought about replacement theology? Which was the excuse. Yeah, replacement theology, that's where it came from. I don't know if you all know what I'm talking about. Replacement theology is the theology that teaches that God is done with the nation of Israel and all the promises to Israel are now going to be fulfilled in the church. It's bad theology. But it came out of the fact that God scattered the nation of Israel, dispersed them in A.D. 70 and actually fully in A.D. 135, And for almost 2,000 years of the church age, there was no Israel. And so we would read the promises of God that He was going to fulfill in Israel and through Israel and to Israel. And we just started saying as as a church, as Christians, well, Israel must not mean Israel anymore. Maybe Israel means something else. And we spiritualize it. There's a tendency for us to do the same thing. There's also a tendency for us, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail later tonight, that in the delay in our minds of Jesus' return, behold, I'm coming quickly. It's been 2,000 years now since He said He would come back. Paul believed it was going to happen in his day. What does Second Peter chapter 3 talk about? In the last days there will be scoffers saying, where is this coming that He promised? And what does Peter say? You hang on to the Word of God. And that's pretty much where we're going the rest of tonight. Folks, I don't know why, but as I put this study together, thinking we're going to go further and move along, God just started hammering over and over that I am to challenge you, and all you listening right now on the, online, that you need to be willing to keep moving forward in faith even though you don't see the promise being fulfilled. And I don't know what that means to you, but you know what that means to you. God has made a promise and God has said in His Word who He is and how He works and what He said He would do. And you're not seeing it. You are to keep going forward in full faith 
hanging on to the fact that God said it. And you're about to see that developed in an amazing way. Let's keep reading. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 through 22. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites in Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Now, if we've read the Bible, we've read those verses, and they read pretty quick. But how many of us have ever taken the time to stop, go back, and not just read those stories, but study those stories? And be honest with you, I've had to give you a Reader's Digest version of my study tonight. But as I went and studied these stories and studied these passages, these verses here jumped out at me in a way I've never seen before. And I can't wait to show it to you. Go to Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. Let's deal with verse 20 first of all. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. In Genesis 26, verses 1 through 6, we see God giving a promise to Isaac. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, and besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. Does that sound familiar? It's the same promise he gave to Abraham. I'll give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Here, Isaac now has been given the exact same promise that Abraham was given. It was to be gone. Remember, God's plan was to go through Abraham to Isaac and so on, as you're about to see. But God gives Abraham the exact same promise. Now, we dealt with this a little bit when we were together last time. Did Abraham fully receive, before he died, the fulfillment of the promise? No. But now that same promise has been given by God to Isaac. Alright, so Isaac goes... In in chapter 27, he blesses his two sons. He has two sons. Esau's the oldest. Jacob's the younger. They're twins. Uh, Esau was born first, though. And uh, Jacob came out right after that. Well, if you know the story, we're not going to take the time to read the whole story. Um, Jacob gets in league with his mama. And they just come up with a way to trick Isaac because he's old and he can't see. And they trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob and not to Esau. Uh, he had told, Isaac told Esau, look, go out into the field, go hunt something down. I want you to kill it and dress it and then bring it to me. I'll eat it and then I'll give you your blessing because I'm about to die. Rebecca hears this. She goes and uh, gets Jacob and she says, I'll tell you what I'll do. You've got to dress yourself in some of the clothes of your brother and we'll put animal furs on you because he's a hairy guy and you're not. And uh, I'll make something quick and you bring it to him and you pretend you're Esau. And this is what Joseph, uh, Jacob does. And in verse 21 of chapter 27, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether or not you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice, this, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him, for his hands were hair like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. 
Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field and that the Lord has blessed. By the way, I don't know how many parents have said that. You know, I smell my son, he smells like a field. But uh, may God give you the heavens due. Give you of the heavens due and of the earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Now Isaac blesses Jacob thinking it's Esau, but he blesses Jacob and the blessing goes to him. Now, we're not going to take the time because we don't have the time tonight to keep reading, but if you were to keep reading in verses 30 and following, you'll see that Esau now shows up with his food and says, I'm ready to be blessed. And he says, wait a minute, I just gave you the blessing. And he says, well, give me the blessing. He says, I can't. And then Isaac says a very interesting thing. He says, he will be blessed indeed. It's going to happen to him. But what is he, what's the blessing here? Look at verse 29. May the nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. And may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Does that sound familiar? It's the promise to Israel. It's now been given to Jacob. Of course, Esau says, don't you have any blessing left over? Look at what the blessing was. Look at verse 39. Look at what comes out of Isaac's mouth. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. That sound like a blessing to you? No, it's not. But actually, everything that Isaac says here to Esau came true. And I'm going to give you some passages that I want you to go look at on your own later on. For the sake of time, we won't look at them. But I'd like you to go look later on at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, excuse me, verses 11 through 13, David is king of Israel, and he subdues the nation of Edom, and they become subject to the nation of Israel, or Judah at this time. Guess what? Edom is Esau. And then in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, that's 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, after David's reign, when another king comes into power, the Edomites rebel, and they, as he said here, throw his yoke from off his neck, and they became in rebellion against the nation of Israel. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. How is Isaac able to say to his son, you're going to be blessed by those who, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed? How does he know this? Because God said it. Has it happened yet? In part, you watch God's hand where Abraham was, God blessed, and where Isaac was, God blessed, and, and God's hand with favor was on him. But again... As it says back here in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Why? Because he first of all knew they'd have a future. And we have to just honestly say we don't understand this, 
But somehow, some way, God spoke through Isaac when He blessed them and He prophesied their futures. And they did come true. It's an element there that, that it scares a lot of us because we don't understand it. We know there are those who try to abuse this type of thing and there are those in Christendom who say, well, I'm going to pronounce a blessing on you. And I've been in a church where they were dedicating this child one time in a baby dedication and somebody went up and laid a hand on him and made a prophecy that that child was going to be a missionary in Uganda or something. I don't know. And I have to be honest and say that ah, time will tell whether or not that guy's prophecy comes true. But we do see scripturally that this stuff did happen. But Isaac, it says here, by faith, blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Where was he living right now? Anybody know where they are? You don't have to give me the exact town. Can you give me the general area? They're in the promised land at this time. Yeah, they're in Canaan. Are they possessors of Canaan? No, they're still living in tents. They're still strangers. And he says, other nations are going to bow down to you. Again, that hasn't happened yet. It will in fulfillment in the last of the last days as well. But Look at the next verse, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Go to Genesis chapter 48. Remember Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is the one that the blessing now comes through. Now, we don't have time to get into wrestling over this. If you want to later on, we can wrestle with that whole issue of Jacob getting the blessing and he snuck it. Actually, earlier, if you know the story, his brother gave it to him for a bowl of soup. So in a sense, it had already been given to him, but that's another whole study for another time. And Malachi even talks about Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's a tough wrestling match, and like I said, I'd love to talk to you about it later, but we don't have time for where we're going tonight. But in Genesis chapter 48, look at verses 1 through 22. Here we see Jacob meet with God himself. Oops, sorry, I'm in the wrong place here. I've got to back up. Genesis 28, I'll get to 48 next. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 15 is where Jacob meets God himself. 28, verse 10 says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So, does this look familiar? This is the same thing that happens to Abraham where God comes and He pronounces this promise. He then shows up to Isaac and pronounces this promise. Now, because the blessing has come from Isaac to Jacob, He pronounces the promise. And in chapter 48, look at chapter 48 now. It says, Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. Joseph's father is Jacob. 
So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, which is his other name, God changed his name, Jacob's name to Israel, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, we just read about that there in Genesis 28, in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit. They will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. And while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath, which is also Bethlehem, so I buried her beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of his old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand. Now you got to understand what's going on. Manasseh is the older son, Ephraim is the younger son. And Joseph puts them on his knees in such a way that the older son will be by his right hand and his younger son will be by his left hand, thinking that his dad, when he blesses them, will put his right hand, which is the right hand of blessing, on the older son and the left hand on his younger son. All right? And uh, verse 14, But Israel reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased, so he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this is the one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as the one who is over your brothers, I will give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Now, excuse me, in this story here, Where is this occurring? Does anybody know where this is occurring? Is at the end of Jacob or Israel's life. This is in Egypt. If you remember, let's do a little quick recap. Jacob had uh, 
bunch of sons, and he had one named Joseph who was his favorite, and he gave him that coat of many colors. The brothers then beat him up, threw him in a well, pretended that he had been killed. They put blood on it, told his dad a lion must have eaten him. He was sold into slavery. He then ended up working for Potiphar. He was accused of rape even though he didn't do it. He then got put in the dungeon, but everywhere he went, God prospered his hand. And this is the same Joseph that God had come to him in a vision and said, your brothers are all going to bow down to you, even your mom and your dad. And then what happens is uh, he goes into uh, the dungeon. He has the, 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 the guys there with him who have the dreams. He interprets the dreams. One of them is put to death like the dream said. The other one's restored to his position. Two years later, he remembers when the king Pharaoh has a dream that there was a guy, Joseph, who could interpret dreams. In doing so, he comes and he does. He tells Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh, about the famine that's coming and how there'll be seven years of plenty and then there'll be seven years of famine. And then Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. And then because of the famine, his brothers who are living in the land of Canaan go to get food from Egypt because they hear there's food in Egypt. Back and forth you go through that whole deal. And then they finally realize that Joseph is there. And they go get dad and they come and they live in Goshen. And this is at the end of Jacob's life. And he then says, when you guys go to the land God promised us, we're going to get to that in a second. He talks about breaking my bones. But did you see there at the end of this? He says, I'm about to die, but God be with you and, take, and we'll take you back to the land of your fathers. They're in Egypt. He's been there 15 years in Egypt. Where's this promise that Abraham was told? And then God says, Isaac, it's yours now. Jacob, it's yours. And Jacob never has it happen in his life. And he says to his sons, you're going back to the land. Why? Because they were men of real faith. Looks stupid, does it not? People could mock and and just say how silly they are to keep living in this pipe dream. The only thing they had to hang on was what? God said it. Folks, it's time. I don't know what's coming down the road. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know why God took this study in this direction. But there may be some things that happen that make us say, wait a minute, that isn't how I thought this eschatology thing was going to go. We had it all charted. I'm going to tell you to hang on to what He said. He's made a promise. And like you said, Suzanne... Not only did he say, you're going back to the land, go back to chapter 47. This is what we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. It says that, By faith Joseph, when the end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he gave instructions about his bones. Here it says in chapter 47, starting in verse 27, Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you'll show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped, and as he leaned on his staff. Oh, by the way, does anybody know the rest of the story? What happens next? 
Do they, after this time period, go to eat, uh, go to the land of Canaan? What happens next? Although they've already been having the famine. Four hundred years of slavery. Remember what happens next? Then there rose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. And they put the Israelites in slavery. And even longer, and even more it looked like, it's not going to happen. We're going to get to next time when we get together next week and look at Moses. And the fulfillment of the promise in the time of Moses, actually at the end of Moses' life, in the time of Joshua. But the Bible says when it was time. It's also fulfillment of the prophecy that Abraham was given by God that the people would serve the stream. God had already said that back in chapter 14, chapter 15. He was told they were going to go into slavery for 400 years. Folks, we have to just be willing to say, don't know how He's going to do it. I don't know when He's going to do it. But He will. There's too many people now that have forgotten the fact that the Bible says that Jesus is coming back. I wrote down in my notes here, why do they keep carrying on this seemingly silly promise? Because God has said He would keep His Word. I'm going to give you a couple of passages, and I think we've got time to do it real quick here. Go to Habakkuk with me to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in chapter 2. Verses 2 and 3. Bacchus cried out to God and said, The wicked are prospering, the righteous are suffering. And then he talks about how God comes and says, The Babylonians are going to come and take you captive. And Habakkuk says, That doesn't make sense to me either. Then God answers him and says, The Lord replied, verse 2 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. By the way, has this promised destruction of Babylon happened yet? Yes, no. Yeah. It, they, they had a partial fulfillment at a certain point in the history of the Bible, but the full fulfillment, if you remember from our Revelation study, has not happened yet, and it's going to happen at the end, as it says here. So this prophecy here has not been fulfilled yet. Here's a promise of God that's, what, four, two to 3,000 years old? It's at least 3,000 years old, probably. I love Habakkuk's response in chapter 3. Look at verses 16 through 19. He said, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Of, at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. No matter how bad it gets between now and the fulfillment of the promise, 
Habakkuk says, I'm keeping my eyes on God. Do I believe that we're in the last of the last days? You know I do. Does that mean that we're going to see the rapture tomorrow? I don't know. We're to be looking. We're to be ready. But what if in God's plan, we go through a real, real bad time here in this country with famines? Or 400 years of slavery. We don't know. Thank God He's not made a prophecy about 400 years of slavery. We don't know that. But All I'm saying to you is this. For some reason, God took this study tonight in the direction of we're faithful to the Scriptures. Most of the men and women of faith waited a long time for His promises to be fully fulfilled. But they kept on in faith. And they didn't fall away. In the little bit we have left, I'm going to ask you to help me. Um, Allison, you got a loud voice. Would you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10? through 10? I, I said that tactfully enough, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. Debbie, would you read Titus chapter 2, verses 11-15? through 15? And then I'll wrap us up with Romans chapter 8, verses 18-25. through 25. That's 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and then Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Here's the setup for these verses that we're going to read as we close. What can we learn from this today? Well, one of the many things is this even though the church age has lasted 2,000 years, we too, like Paul and many others, must be ready and looking for the return of Jesus for his bride. We must wait patiently and keep looking for it in full faith. And read for us 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10, Allison. For the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. But they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. How many years ago was that written? A little less than 2,000. And they were told to wait for the Son from Heaven who was going to come and get them. Correct? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It reaches, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you teach. That's good. Courage and review with all authority. Do not let anyone... Hear what he said to them there in Titus? As we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. Again, a little less than 2,000 years ago, they were waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ for his bride. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Do you realize that what's happening to us is the same thing that happened to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? The promise kept being passed down to the next generation. And they were revered in Hebrews chapter 11 as men and women, we'll get to them maybe next week if we have time, of faith who kept going even though it didn't look like it was going to happen. And folks, I want to challenge you to be those same kind of people. God has said that He would not only save us, that He would come and get us. And one day He's going to come and gather His bride as a whole. If we die between now and then, we will still get the promises fulfilled. Jesus will still come for you. He made a promise He'll keep it. But one day He will come for the rest. And we will come with Him if we've already gone to be with Him. And our bodies will come out of the ground and the ones alive on the earth will be caught up. This is going to happen. Keep going forward in faith because God said it. Father, thank You again for this promise. Thank You for this study tonight that, like I said, I just the more I looked at it, the more I started to see You say, no, take them here. Take them here. And Father, it's been good for me to go here too. Thank You for the fact that as we really looked at these stories, we came to realize just a little bit of the fact that hundreds and thousands of years were passing. The fulfillment of the promise hasn't even happened yet. We're going to get to a little bit later in the book of Hebrews how you've promised something that we with them will be able to experience it together. And Lord, your word says that you are going to come back and you will step on this earth. You literally will reign for a thousand years and we with you. And that's when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are going to be on the earth and it will be given to them in the full, full fulfillment of their promise And all these things you've said all the way through the Old Testament, we see the prophecies about the end. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, you prophesied about what was going to be happening to the nation of Israel and how they'd be scattered to all the nations. And in the end, you'd bring them back and you'd circumcise their hearts. And all the way through Scripture, we keep seeing that there is a day that is coming when all will be reconciled. And Lord, we hang on like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It may seem silly to the people of the world, but we're going to keep going forward in faith. Believing that what you said is true even though it looks like the promise won't come true. Because we hang on to your word and that's all we need. Lord, we've seen though also in this study that you made visits to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and so on. Thank you that you live within us and are able to speak to our hearts in those days in which we need it. And you know who's listening right now and what kind of a touch they need. And I just pray, Father that they would be still and let You speak to their heart and give them that personal word of encouragement as well to keep going forward in faith. We thank You again for the fact that we have You and Your Word to hang on to in this chaotic world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.